What we're doing is reading a document that I wrote on the Desire of Ages, Chapter 79. And what I would try to do was to understand this chapter, and I went as slowly as I needed to to do that, and the result is this document. So we're reading that and discussing it paragraph by paragraph. I'm going to begin with the paragraph on page 12, pages 761 to 762 of the Desire of Ages. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in the knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. By shifting from Satan's claims about divine justice and mercy to reveal situation of humankind deception, Ellen White changes the paradigm from legal Satan's claims to exper experiential God's plan. Experience is the stuff of the Hebrew Bible and even things legal were anciently rooted in experience. Experience is also stuff of the natural world and natural law. It is in the latter context that she can say that human beings might be saved through a knowledge of God's love. To argue that, because human experience differed from Satan's experience, the outcome is therefore different, is to set the issues in the context of cause and effect descriptive relationships rather than the legal prescriptive relationships. If human beings are deceived about God and can, through a revelation of the truth about him, be won back to love and trust in him, whereas Satan had made a final choice in the face of knowing fully that truth, then the paradigm is clearly a cause-effect one, where because the conditions change, the outcome changes also. Thus, without using these terms, Ellen White shows that Satan's claims came from his legal paradigm while God's claims operate within a descriptive paradigm. Any questions or comments? Can you explain, uh, can you explain the uh, relationship between cause and effect here uh, and your idea about that? Cause and effect means if I'm going a certain direction, downward, and I'm, the cause is that I'm going farther away from God. And then the effect is going to be the loss of life, closeness, trust. There, there's a whole list of effects. If I turn around and start coming back the other direction, being drawn by the love of God, the net effect is going to be life and closeness to God and trust and love and all those things. So that when we talk about a change that can take place in a person's mind about God, we are talking descriptive rather than legal. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Okay, let's uh, move on. And Alex, you can read. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men. 
But mercy does not set aside justice. The law reveals the attributes of God's character, and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 This is further clarified in this paragraph. If the divine law were a legal entity, it would be changed. It could be changed. In legal systems, laws are changed all the time because they operate through enforcement, where the law, use of law is controlled by external powers through some sort of some use of force, and then those same powers can change those laws. Even in the Persian Empire, where the king was made made unalterable decrees, decrees could be established to offset these decrees. But if the law of God is moral, and thus is built upon non-force, descriptive principles of how things work, and cause and effect relationships that are eternal, then such laws cannot be changed. Without Without force being an ingredient in law, the only way it can operate is through its inevitable and inherent consequences, cause and effect. Do you know what inevitable means? Unavoidable. Unavoidable. <laughs> That's as nat- close to natural law of cause and effect as you can get. It's inevitability. It means it comes directly out of the thing that causes it, and there's no way to stop it. Which, coming back to what was read earlier, that you raised a question about, Alex, that when a person goes the wrong way away from God, they suffer inevitable consequences unless God knowing that they could turn around, suspends those consequences. God has the power to suspend those consequences, those immediate consequences, giving them time to, to make that decision. But once that decision is made, God isn't going to force himself on that person, thus giving them life. It's, it's the way I see it. So, so we're dealing with inevitability, cause, real cause and effect relationships. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, and man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to the earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of man. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 3.26 See page 11 above. Jesus' offer of a perfect life is not a legal transaction. It is real and experiential. Jesus showed us how we can live a perfect life. Not through forcing ourselves to obey God's arbitrary law, but through coming to know God and to trust Him, which allows Him access to our minds to transform our characters. 
Part of that transformation is to move from Satan's legal paradigm to God's paradigm of truth and love. Thus the way the universe has always lived and loved is the way God is to reclaim us to live and love again. We love because he first loved us. Note that she quotes the Bible to the effect that we have remission of sin through the forbearance equals patience of God. It is God who forgives through his patience an attribute of his love, not through having been bought off by a legally imposed penalty. Christ's life stands for our life, not arbitrarily nor in a legal sense, but in an experiential way. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of love, that is, was loving, kind, considerate, truthful, honest, pure, and thus holy. He did this where we failed and became unloving, unkind, inconsiderate, dishonest, untrustworthy, impure, and unholy. Since Jesus exhibited as a human being how to obey by relying on his Father's love, receiving it into his life through prayer and the study of his word, and through ministering it to others, he demonstrated that we may become through his spirit and grace by the same means. The evidence of this truth is what allows our redemption to continue. Remember, God's government is based upon demonstration of evidence, not enforcement or compelling power of any kind. Any comments or questions? The fact that God does not compel us to obey him, but gives us a free will, is amazing in itself. Because if he created us, he could have made us to think and be good and do all the right things. Yet then we would be just robots without thought right. or desire to serve him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the paragraph we just read from Desire of Ages is probably one of the most legal ones in the entire chapter. I mean, it sounds legal. The uh, imputed and imparted righteousness. Uh, he offers this as a free gift to all who receive them. We usually talk about that in more legal terms. But I, I have come to believe in, in studying her and in studying, just thinking it through, that this is not legal, this is experiential. This is, it, it, it is, has to do with relationship, one relationship with one person to another, namely Christ with us. So that when he offers his character, his life that he lived as a free gift, it isn't something arbitrarily implanted over us to hide our sinfulness. It is something offered to us that as we partake of, we become like him. There's no like, mechanistic function by which through obeying perfectly, we are able to obey. Like, I think there's a popular notion in some Christian theology that somehow only we can obey because Christ obeyed perfectly. What I, what I think is that if by beholding we become changed and if we love because we first loved him, if we focus on that, the transformation is inevitable. To use that word again. One of the things that strikes me going back to this experiential versus mechanical or arbitrary uh, is the Gospels make it quite clear that Jesus did not just commune with people, he was constantly communing with God. Yes. Uh, and especially before times of uh, either great miracles or big events that happen in his mm-hmm. life, he's constantly communicating. 
Right. And the Gospels make it quite clear that there's a relationship happening, not merely Jesus consulting the Torah. Right. Right. There was a connection, a connection that is closer than I think we can even have with one another between him and his father. And the intimacy level can only happen through a heart being completely open and tender to the love of God. And I I think that's communicated through prayer, through a sense of God's presence in one's life, and through through reading scripture and, and, and wrestling with it, not just casually reading it, but wrestling with it in terms of who is God and what is he like. God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. It had been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. He sought to prove that the righteousness of God's law is an enemy to peace. But Christ shows that in God's plan, they are indissolubly joined together, that one cannot exist without the other. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalms 85.10 God's love is both justice and mercy, with justice the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. Satan tried to divorce mercy from justice. Did he seek to prove what forensic theologians believe, that mercy and justice are in conflict, and that God can only show mercy if he vents his anger on himself in his son? Uh, Some forensic theologians believe God vented his anger on his son, apart from himself. Uh, Stott is the one who believes that God vented his anger on himself, which sounds terribly masochistic to me. But <laughs> She goes on to say, not that Christ's death made a reconciliation between God's justice and mercy, but rather that his death proved what was already true. God's justice did not destroy his mercy. This only works if mercy and justice are in harmony with each other, and that is only possible if God's justice is built upon the moral law of cause-effect relationships. Thus, if human conditions were to change, and through a revelation of God's character, they were won back into a harmonious relationship with God of love and trust, and thus obedience, then the effect would be that God could heal them from sin. The idea is that the revelation of the truth about God through the death of Christ would be so complete that all could intelligently make up their minds for or against God, just as the angels had to do in the very beginning when rebellion first occurred. Any comments or questions? I was reading something yesterday that really struck me uh, about justice and God and judgment. And um, I read that in the ancient times, um, the judge was the defender of the accused. And then if, and sometimes he would have an advocate for the defender. So God is our defender, Christ is our advocate, and Satan is our accuser. And it just amazed me that God's on our side all the time. I mean, we're not standing in judgment before God for all the wrong things we've done, but we're there because Satan's accusing us. And that changes how we look at things. Yeah. That's, that's very good. Um, 
and that that ancient view is really comes out of more of a probably a tribal setting where you have the city gate as the court uh, you don't it, once you hit babylon with its higher levels of of legal systems you don't have that anymore but in in the the ancient courts of the cities i think that was probably much truer that's very very good and i think that when we split justice from mercy we then have god looking kind of schizophrenic <laughs> with one side of him wanting to love and forgive us and the other side wanting to whack us and and they have to come somehow be reconciled and to me uh, having studied that book that i referred to some time back of of two minds where we actually according to one psychiatrist we have two separate brains that don't always agree within ourselves that's a fracture because of sin uh that has happened to us that means that god is really no different than we are uh, as sinful human beings or rather we were created in his image well we were created in his image in the sense that we have two two minds but god's two minds work together harmoniously ours don't and that's that's what i think is the difference okay by his life and his death christ proved that god's justice did not destroy his mercy but that sin could be forgiven and that the law is righteous and can be perfectly obeyed satan's charges were refuted god had given man unmistakable evidence of his love by his life and death jesus established that god's law is rooted in intrinsic consequences his death also revealed that the nature of god is love and that love is experiential and rooted in cause effect and thus god's love can affect great changing people god could and did win people to love and trust him so that he could heal them from sin thus justice and mercy are totally blended since justice is but letting people go their own choice and its consequences while forgiveness is letting go of the sin of sinners the variable in the process here is not god but the choice of the sinner. I'd like to emphasize that I've come to conclude that wrath and forgiveness are almost the same thing. They're the, like flip sides of the same coin. That is love forgives by letting go the sin of the sinner. Because the sin the sinner has let it go. It said, "We don't want this any longer." God says, "I let it go." then if they hang on to that sin and say no we won't let it go and we won't come back to god we won't let him help us get rid of it uh we won't let the love of god lead us to repentance and all of that then god says you can have your choice i will let you go that letting go is the same action it's just that the sin sinner has has chosen sin instead of god that that's how i see that and so there really is Wrath is lovingly respecting the person's choice. And God doesn't have any uh, jubilation party over having to let someone go. He's very sad. So what we have is God doing the same action, really, the same kind of thing, whether he forgives or whether he lets go. Another deception was now to be brought forward. Satan declared that mercy destroys justice. 
that the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. But to abrogate the law would be to immortalize transgression and place the world under Satan's control. It was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through obedience to its precepts, that Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Yet the very means by which Christ established the law, Satan represented as destroying it. Here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Satan now brought forward the Congress charge that mercy set aside justice and that Jesus' death changed God's law. Once again, this only works in a forensic system because in that system, the law is externally enforced by arbitrary punishment. Jesus' death, therefore, allows for a change in God's law because it fulfills that punishment. By contrast, in the non-legal system of divine love, Jesus' death is the pivotal experience only demonstrates the truth about the way God's nature and government work and actually shows that to live out of harmony with divine love is death. In, in this construct, his death does not change anything except human hearts, who are won back to God by seeing the truth about him. Because Jesus' death shows that death is the inevitable consequence of sin. The law of love is vindicated and shown to be irrevocable and unchanging. But in a legal construct, God struggles between justice and mercy and wrestles whether, with whether sinners should be punished with death or forgiven. The atonement in this construct reconciles God's justice and mercy and thus affects a change in God's way of dealing with sinners. Though theologians do not state this necessarily, the atonement affects a change in God's character. And if God's character can be changed, surely so could his law. So what I'm trying to argue here is that what she is suggesting is that Satan's construct, which I believe is, is all a force and compelling power, which the legal system is a part of, it, because the legal system uses enforcement. It's, it's a, an enforcement model for trying to control people's behavior. Because of that, the legal system in the legal system, laws can be changed all the time because people's ideas change, their characters change, everything changes. Whereas in the law of cause and effect, the moral law, that God is the embodiment of, things cannot be changed that easily. They, they can't be changed at all without the serious consequences of destruction and death. So that's what I'm arguing here. Any questions or comments about that? I guess since the atonement is such like a well commonly understood model, you know, like that's why did you sign the cross to pay for our sins kind of thing? What what in, in your new or in your viewpoint, what what's the significance of Christ? Why did Jesus have to die? We're gonna to come to that in the last few pages of this chapter, but just to sh give you the shortcut <laughs> on that. Jesus died to demonstrate that sin leads to death. The, the original lie of Satan was you shall not surely die if you disobey God. 
And that left the door open for all kinds of interpretations on what God meant when he said, you shall surely die. And I know of scholars, I had a scholar, a Jewish scholar in my doctoral program, who when I tried to point out that it says, you shall surely die, not you shall surely be put to death, that he said, but when God does it, it's always, you shall surely be put to death. Well, that's arbitrary. There's no evidence for that. But you see how that has been used and abused by human beings throughout the centuries. We, we have an ever-burning hell portrayal as a result of that. We have uh, the belief that God is going to torture us as long as we deserve out of that. Uh, there's been all kinds of these, these beliefs about what happens when someone dies or, or, or what happens when... Uh, death occurs. Is it the result of sin? Is it the result of what God warned us about? So Jesus dies to demonstrate the truth about the nature and consequences of sin. And by, di- by looking at his death, we can see how he died. Did God kill his son? That's the major question at the cross. Did God kill his son? <laughs> Our sin killed him, right. Uh, and that becomes quite clear when you put the pieces of the puzzle together in the Bible that Jesus is our sin bearer. Isaiah 53 really makes this extremely clear that God gave up Jesus to the consequences of sin. And actually, in the, in the Septuagint reading of Isaiah 53, it actually says he was given over to, our, to sin. And when you go then to the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Uh, he's, he's dying already from mental anguish, mental agony from being separated from his father. So, so that's why Jesus had to die. I think you're looking up Isaiah 53. <laughs> I, I used the Septuagint, so you're not going to find that reading there. But uh, maybe sometime... We ought to go through my study on Isaiah 53 and, and let you see how that all works out. That would be very interesting. Uh, we, could, we could do that after we finish this. That the law which was spoken by God's own voice is faulty, that some specification has been set aside, is the claim which Satan now puts forward. It is the last great deception that he will bring upon the world. He needs not to assail the whole law. If he can lead men to disregard one precept, his purpose is gained. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2.10 By consenting to break one precept, men are brought under Satan's power. By substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. His work is foretold in prophecy. Of the great apostate power, which is the representative of Satan, it is declared, he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hands. Daniel 7.25 By consenting to break one precept, men are brought under Satan's power. Satan's power is that of force, so is sin. Sin is violation of who we were made to be and do, by sinning, we do violence to ourselves and to others because we are going contrary to how we were made to be. Sin inevitably leads to death, 
and thus it is completely alien to the ways and character of God. By choosing to annul one of the ten laws of love, sinners separate themselves from the God of love. By substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. By substituting the legal paradigm for the moral, descriptive, cause-effect paradigm, Satan will be able to control the world. Now we're back to compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be prevailing power. Okay, any comments or questions? That's Ellen White. Yes, that's, that's at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, <laughs> yes, you've heard me quote it. <laughs> this concept of law and God being perfect justice is like, pretty biblical, because I, I hear that a lot from conversations with friends. Like, God is perfect justice and perfect you know, forgiveness in one being. No, with, with every term we use, we need to say, and what do you mean by justice? And <laughs> what, what do you mean by... <laughs> because their view of justice, I think, is retribution. The biblical view of justice is fair treatment. That's its pre primary view. Justice, I don't know if justice is ever connected to retribution. It may be, and that's something I have to study out. But uh, its primary meaning in the Old Testament, it, for example, the judges of Israel were saviors. Hmm. They delivered Israel from their enemies. Uh, and so you have this perception, like you were mentioning, the judge in the ancient court. Uh, the judge in the ancient court is the savior. He's the rescuer. He's the one who rescues the downtrodden, the victimized from their oppressors. So, yeah, I, I think when they talk about justice, they're talking about something completely different than what we're talking about here. Uh, so, yes. It's also interesting to read the sentence that says, by consenting to break one precept, men are brought under Satan's power. So we don't need to break God's law. We just... Just one. Just one. Or just a small part of one. Because, because when we do, we violate ourselves. Yeah. We, we destroy something of ourselves. And when, once we indulge in violence, we're under Satan's dominion. And yet, the Bible says we're all sinners. Yeah. Right. We all are under compelling power to a certain degree, and it, and you, you find that out very quickly when you work for someone who uses compelling power. You tend to surrender very quickly and say, oh, "Yes, sir. Whatever you say, sir," and and so on. Uh, and that's when you find out we have this in, inherent, almost inherent weakness for lining up when force is used in any way, or when it's arbitrary. We tend to have an inherent uh, weakness to be arbitrated. And that's why so many people are victims of abuse in our world, because we just have this weakness to go for it. We can't stand up against it. I, I like um, in Romans 6 when it talks about um, uh, slavery to God, or slavery to sin, Mm -hmm. um, I like that you can't be on the fence. You have to be on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. And that chapter, that's Romans 6. Yeah. That chapter is, ends with the wages of sin or death. Yeah. 
the gift of God is eternal life. And, and you have this cause-effect relationship all the way through that chapter. If you sow to the lower nature, you reap the consequences. You reap the harvest. Uh, so you have this constant cause and effect going on. Okay. It is not surprising that the commandment Satan attacks is the one portion of the Decalogue that is the most descriptive in nature and forms its core because it contains the divine insignia of God as the creator of all. The Sabbath clearly belongs to descriptive law because it is wholly commemorative. And I get that from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 48. And stands as a memorial in time of God's work as creator and redeemer. Just as God created the natural world to operate on descriptive laws, so his very nature operates by such law, and natural law is but a limited illustration of God's moral laws. Furthermore, the Sabbath commandment is at its heart a law of freedom and equal rights, something to be extended to all creation. Thus it is descriptive time, hailing these two principles as the foundation of God's system of governance and highlighting the fact that God is not a God of force. Okay, pause. Any questions, comments? You know that some believe that the Sabbath was given as an arbitrary test of our obedience. That, that term has, just, yes, has been used to apply to the Sabbath. And, it, and to many people, it seems that way. I mean, one day out of seven, why, why that one day? It, it seems arbitrary. There doesn't seem to be a reason for it. But if it is wholly commemorative, is it arbitrary to celebrate the 4th of July? So celebrating the 4th of July is something we do because of the meaning behind it. Although I often ask my students, I used to often ask my students when I taught this, that I, I would say, how many of you celebrated the 4th of July? And they all raised their hands. And how many of you celebrated Independence Day? <laughs> no hands, or maybe two hands. <laughs> you know, we, we do our celebration, but we forget what the meaning is of the day. And I think that's what's happened to Seventh-day Adventists around the world with the Sabbath. It has become just a day to worship God, to go to church, We've separated it from its meaning. And when we do that, we're in danger of losing it. The meaning being the memorial of God's work as creator. As creator, which brings us right back to descriptive law. So if, if what, the essence of God is creator, means, first of all, he's the life giver, not the destroyer. Sabbath has nothing to do with destruction. It has everything to do the way Jesus kept it, the way the Bible teaches it, it has everything to do with restoration. Uh, so it, it teaches us that God is the life giver, not the destroyer. It teaches us that he built the universe on cause-effect relationships. So it is the, 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 really the seal of the Ten Commandments in terms of pointing to their descriptive nature, that they're descriptive law, not legal. By assailing the Sabbath, Satan attempted to entrench humanity in its legal system of governance. He first tried with the chosen people to bind the Sabbath by arbitrary rules that trampled its descriptive nature and turned it into a legalistic burden. 
When Jesus rested in the tomb over the Sabbath, in commemoration of his triumph for God's vindication at the cross, Satan schemed to further his hatred for Sabbath and its meaning. By persecuting the Jews, he persuaded early Christians to wish to leave behind any Jewish identification, and thus the Sabbath. Then he turned to Christians toward the day that was historically most tied to the legal system he had invented on the plains of Shinar. The, the, the day of the sun, the ancient god of justice and law, on the stella of Hammurabi's laws is a picture of Shamash, the sun god handing to the king the insignia of justice from which he issued his laws. Any questions or comments? What, what is that day referring to? Is it um, Sunday, right? Is that mm-hmm. referring to Sunday? Okay. The, Sunday is the day of the sun. It was anciently okay. uh, venerated as the day of the sun by pagans. And the Christians took it on in order to uh, get away from the Jewish Sabbath, as they thought. But that day is rooted anciently in the whole legal construct. Hmm. Wow. So when we, when we talk about Sabbath Sunday issues, we're really, if we talk about them the way they should be talked about, I believe, we're really talking about the whole legal model versus moral model. Yeah, I think this is a good place to stop. So why don't we have a closing prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you that when we look at your ways, we see harmony, coherence, and more than that, the heart of your love that you never change that you are always constantly loving us and that everything you do harmonizes with that love including your justice we ask that we may see this more clearly and and in our lives we may stop abusing ourselves by violating the way you created us to be may we grow in our understanding of you in Jesus name Amen Amen